sometimes we can't see other people we're in relationship with because in some ways they remind you of a previous relationship that you have unfinished business with and you're treating this new person as if they were that other person that you didn't fully resolve the relationship. And so we treat them not like who they are, but as if they're this other person. Yeah. And if you become aware of that, then you can do your healing work, use the transference to understand what you're doing and heal that incomplete relationship or whatever was wounded in you by it so that you can then see that person clearly. Yeah, exactly. There might be a new opportunity to do something in the current relationship that you couldn't do in the previous relationship. Hey, 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 so glad you're here. This is Tracking Yes, and you are exactly where you're meant to be. I'm your host, Liz Wilson, coach, creator, and round-the-clock philosopher. And this, my friends, is where the magic happens. Join me and my guests for stories that will inspire you to dial up your curiosity, fine-tune your courage and wisdom, and create an empowered relationship with whatever's happening now. Dr. Brian Stafford is a former pediatrician and psychiatrist who left his position as an endowed chair in academic psychiatry to rewild and ensoul his life and to discover his deeper calling. On today's show, Brian and I delve into the realms of mystery and shadow to explore the magic and possibility that emerges when we're willing to leave the safety of the known to uncover and reclaim our wholeness. So, Brian, I so am glad to talk to you today because we've been trying to get this conversation going for a while now, and yay, we finally lined it up. But I first met you a year ago on an online course for Animus Valley Institute called Nature and the Human Soul, which was a deep dive into Bill Plotkin's ecocentric, soul-centric development wheel. That's great. Um, Yeah. And it was awesome. And then just recently, a month ago, I was with you in the Sonoran Desert taking a course called the Way of Counsel and the Art of Mirroring, also a really cool course in how we see each other and how we reflect each other to each other and how we, in community with each other, dialogue. So, I I mean, there's a million places I could go in a conversation with you. So I'm so excited to have you here and I don't even know where to start. So here's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start with a little bit of your history in that you were a former pediatrician and psychiatrist and very successful in the cultural world that we live in. And you left your position as an endowed chair in academic psychiatry to, as you put it, to rewild and ensoul your own life and to discover your deeper calling. And out of that journey, it led you to becoming a nature-based soul guide. And I'm so curious because you speak in your bio about being a leader in the rewilding and ensouling movement. And so what is that? Yeah, it's a very good question to start on. And I think it's one of the, or maybe the two primary questions of what's wrong with Western overculture. You know, kind of what I'd been tracking personally in my life is although I was wildly successful and loved what I did, I was an academic psychiatrist and teaching and doing research and building systems and mentoring 
pediatricians and child psychiatrists. I really felt like what I was primarily doing was helping people fit into a broken society. And it didn't feel like that was enough to do that. So I was happy with what I did. It's what my ego wanted me to do. It's like, oh, this is the thing that you're made to do. And I was pretty good at it. It helped people for sure. And then I got to a point where not too long after I found I was going to get this endowed chair, the voice just said, you're done. And I was like, oh my God. It was really authentic, like a voice from the inner God or from God or mystery or something like that. And it terrified me and excited me. But were you like, were, were you just minding your own business and this voice came in or like what happened? It was happened? in the middle of the night. It was in the middle of the night. And once I heard that, I kind of realized that there had been other things pushing at my edges about what's happening for the planet. That really wasn't a conversation happening in the medical school at, at all or in the departments of psychiatry. And there wasn't this sense of what does spirituality have to do with being human? That wasn't also involved in the profession at all. Psychiatry got stuck in the DSM of symptoms and pathology, what's wrong with you and how do we fix it? So I was kind of questioning my worldview, questioning psychiatry's worldview, and also wondering what else is there? If I'm a success in the medicine world and the academic world, and I feel like I'm doing good things and I'm supporting my family, is that all there is to life? So it seemed like a bit of a flatland. And I'll just share that I grew up evangelical Christian, which was mostly about conformity to particular beliefs to fit in in that culture and wondering and having a belief system about the mystery or about God or the sacred, but it really wasn't about direct experience. So I'm going to go back to the question now. Some of the things that I was longing for, I just noticed like every weekend, I just wanted to go into nature. I wanted to hike. I wanted to ski. I wanted time alone. And I always felt more at home in nature than anywhere else, than in the office and in the hospital, et cetera. And that was always a curiosity for me. And felt these pullings to just leave medicine and go west over the Rocky Mountains. I was in Denver at the time. And one of the things after I left, I might share a mystical experience I had. I started reading a book, and it was a book by Bill Plotkin called Soulcraft, which was Bill's first published work. And in there, I just remember reading these stories about the kind of the magical and mysterious things that happen to people when they're on these wilderness fasts, where they're in the desert or the mountains for multiple days at a time away from people, away from food, just re-entering into their inner nature, their true nature. And I was like, if that's the way the world is, I want to experience that. I want to live in that world. The writing and the stories just allured me. And uh, so I took a bit of a sabbatical. And during that time, I was able to go on a program with Animus. It was like an eight-day backpacking trip. You hiked down into a uh, Utah Canyon for, I don't know, about two or three miles. And then we just did different practices there of connecting to nature and connecting to dream and different things like that. And we had a 24-hour solo. We were out in nature on your own for 24 hours. You're not eating. And the guides have given you a couple of tasks. And when I was out there, I felt like what I was really missing was a connection. I never had elders or grandparents. My, my grandparents were not the kind of people who were close or intimate or my mom said they had way too many grandkids. They had like 40 grandkids. My dad's side, they had a few, but my grandmother had died when I was young, and my grandfather was not the kind of person interested in kids. 
So I, there was a big grief in my life that kind of came up for me. And so I decided to sit in this um, juniper tree, who I called Grandfather Juniper. And I told the story of, wow, I wished I would have had someone who didn't want me to change like my parents did or to be something they wanted me to be. Someone who just celebrated who I was. And it was a really powerful experience. And then I, that night I lied down on the ground and in the middle of the night I woke up, I think, and there was this woman that looked like, like a Native American woman, an indigenous woman of the canyon. And right near where I was, there was a kiva from many centuries beforehand that had been a site for sacred work, and it was not too far from me. And when I woke up, I just looked at this individual, and she just looked at me with this amazing heart of love and said, welcome home. And I just burst into tears. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was kind of a mystical experience of returning to Mother Earth is what I later felt and understood it to be, that I had become a bit estranged from the Earth by doing so much work and spending so much time in buildings and trying to become somebody important, someone helpful. And it helped me remember that when I was a kid, I always felt like my primary place of where I belonged was in the creek or in the mountains, or in the forest. So. It's one of the things that we've tracked, and this is part of the rewilding question here. People have these unique experiences, which we call ecological awakening. Ecological awakening, where they sense that where they primarily belong is not their religion or their profession or their political party or even their family. It's really earth. And this is something that what most people who grow up in a healthy-based culture or a nature-based culture never lose. But we often lose it in Western overculture because we're not encouraged to spend time in nature as children. We're quickly pushed into schools, quickly given screens. We're not cultivating our imagination or our emotions or our connection to wild things. And people who do these kinds of programs, especially when there's like a 24-hour solo, this is the story they often tell when they come back. So for me, that's a bit of rewilding. It's to remember that our primary place of belonging is the wild earth, and it's not necessarily to fill a societal role as a job. And so I experienced the return to that, and it continues to deepen in my life. And that's some of the work that Animus does, and something that seems really important for the evolution or the return of human culture to a place of living ecocentrically rather than egocentrically or culture-centrically or anthropocentrically. And it seems to be an important developmental return for us as a people. Yeah. I'm very curious about how insouling goes with rewilding. And okay. particularly, yeah. what is, from Animus' point of view, from the work you're doing in the world, what is soul and what matters about coming into relationship with soul? Because yeah. it feels like that is way on the fringes of what has our attention in our culture. So there might be an important place to start and where Bill Platt can always start, which is in definitions, right? So how do we define soul? There's probably a thousand different ways that the word soul is used in our culture, like chicken soup for the soul. That's not at all what I'm talking about. What would that definition of soul be, chicken soup for the soul? I think it's just comforting the wounded ego. Okay. <laughs> like something that provides solace or comfort. Something that's like doing something to make yourself feel good. That's a lot different than what I'm going to talk about. Soul often is 
used primarily as a spiritual definition, right? And depending on who you talk to, it sometimes they equate it with spirit. How do you differentiate between spirit and soul is often a question that people ask me. And our understanding of soul, which is similar to what Carl Jung was writing about, and often many poets, mythic poets especially, are writing about, and Bill has really languished this quite well in all four of his books, but especially uh, Journey of Soul Initiation, Soulcraft, and Nature and the Human Soul. In some ways, soul is an ecological definition. It's a place that one fills. And uh, it often comes as a metaphor, which makes it hard to understand. <laughs> it's not like a job or a vocation. I'll just use Bill as an example. In his books, he writes about when he was on his vision fast, that he was self-guiding. He really was curious about non-ordinary states of consciousness and really curious about who he was to be in the world. He'd been a very successful psychologist and felt the call to walk away from that. And on the third day of his vision fast, he was out there in a mountain environment, alpine environment, communing with the lake and inhabitants of the lake. And all of a sudden, across the meadow, there was a butterfly, just moving as butterflies do, circuitously working their way toward him. And then it brushed his cheek. And right at that moment, he heard the words, cocoon weaver. That's another example of a mystical encounter. It was something like, here is the identity you're meant to live in the world. That's what we understand by soul. It's a deep and wild identity. A wild identity is that we primarily belong to earth. The deep and wild identity is your soul identity. And for Bill, it came as a metaphor of how he might serve in the world. Those things are mystical, right? So they're ineffable. They're hard to describe. Sometimes seem too big, too mysterious. And of course, oh, it's exciting. It's a mystical experience. Right. What does that mean? And uh, as he describes in his books, over the next couple of months, he came to learn that what he was to do as a cocoon weaver was to weave cocoons of transformation for his people. That's part of the definition of cocoon weaver for him, which meant guiding vision fasts and guiding other nature-based and wilderness programs that would help people die to their understanding of who they were and come to a more ecological or soul-centric understanding of who they are and how they're here to serve. So that might be the ensouling part of that question. And you have to have this experience of belonging to earth first before you're ready to discover your soul. And why is that? That's a good question. Part of it might be that you would not want an individual. Let me just say a little bit more about soul and then I'll answer the question. So related to soul, this place, also on this journey of what we call soul initiation, you also discover your powers, your soul powers. These are unique soul powers that allow you to do your work in the world. And you wouldn't really want people to develop their soul powers unless they were pretty mature individually. <laughs> they had a whole ego, enough healing of their ego. And so it might be that's the way we're designed, that we're whole enough and healed enough and ready to explore soul and our identity so that we can bring our powers and our gifts to help transform the world. A person who's very wounded discovers their soul powers. They could be really dangerous to culture, not in a healthy way, but in a detrimental way. So that's part of the way we're woven, that you wouldn't want people to really find their deepest powers until they were mature enough to go on this journey. And part of the maturation is remembering that you belong to earth. You're not just here to serve society. 
You're here to discover how you serve society by going on these journeys to the wild and to the depths. It's interesting because I noticed that until you start to spend a fair bit of time in nature, which is not common for people in our culture, until you start to, like, it's almost like in my experience, it's been at first, I'm like just out in nature going, okay, I'm sitting with a tree and what am I doing here? And because I'm so in my human self, over time, though, something starts to shift and it's like it comes in the back door almost and surrounds you. At least that's my experience where all of a sudden I just would have moments of like, oh, I am being held. Wait. That's by right. nature. I am loved. I'm truly loved. Like you you start to feel it in your being. And that for me is when it started to really shift about, it's not about what's in my head about what I should be doing. It's feeling what I belong to, what I am an expression of in my whole body. And then everything starts to shift and change. Yeah. And I love that you brought in, it's not in your head. Like you can't think your way into it. And often it's the head or our ability to be cognitive creatures that keeps us away from our participation in the earth. This comes from a body of work as well called the wild mind work. When we spend a lot of time and we're fully in our senses and we're really present and we're also opening up to our body and our emotions and we have access to our imagination, things begin to shift in the way that we perceive and participate in the world. And opening up those what we call windows of knowing and prolonged experience in nature or certain practices that we invite people into nature to do really begin to shift this relationship. You're bringing in the four ways of knowing that Bill speaks to. So I would love to actually speak specifically to the four windows or ways of knowing each one and say a little bit more about them. Sure. Yeah, this comes from Bill's book, Wild Mind, and it's an essential part of every program that we guide is to open these windows up again. And something that Bill discovered and other guides discovered in guiding these journeys is that one way of knowing the world is through the senses, by being present and really in your senses. Taste, touch, sound, feeling, inner sense, kind of your gut sets or what we call interoception. All of that is really being present and People who meditate in nature had similar experiences like, oh, the earth holds me. She's my mother. And it's not just the knowing of that, like a Gaia hypothesis thing. It's a felt sense of it. So that's one of the windows of knowing is being present and in your senses. Another one is embodied emotion. We're a pretty emotionally unintelligent culture, society on the whole. We label Emotions is bad, like grief and anger, and try and get little boys to not be sad and to get younger women to be less emotional. We don't really know how to hold emotion. One of the really important windows of knowing is emotion, and not just feeling emotion, but feeling where they live within our body and coming to understand what they tell us about what we value. So being in one's body and having access to the sensual body and deep emotions is also a powerful window of knowing. And it's rarely supported in Western education. Another window of knowing is what we call the deep imaginal. And this is not like surface imagination or daydream, which is an important part of who we are. It helps us be creative, but it's something that comes unbidden. 
in dreams, for example. And this is maybe where Carl Jung was really one of the profound kind of breakthrough teachers and nurses that what's really important is what's happening when we're asleep. That's a way of knowing. And it's a way of knowing part of the world or part of the psyche of ourselves that we don't have access to when we're awake. Animus and others have also found other ways, which we call deep imaginal journeys, which is accessing the part of the imagination, asking something to come from the depths to that. That's an important practice as well. And most people find incredibly powerful and really enchanting as well. And then the fourth window of knowing is it's called heart-centered thinking. Not thinking per se, which most of us are trained to be good thinkers and memorizers and regurgitators of things. But this is thinking that doesn't necessarily come from head. It comes from the resonance of the heart with the entire body. And it tends not to be thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow or in the next quarter's profit statement, but it's like deep time thinking. Like, how do I act so I'm in service to the future generations? It's our thinking that really comes from the heart. What, when you say deep time, can you say more what you mean by deep time? Yeah, I think often people who grow up in this kind of consumer culture and we're trained to think this way, we think and we worry about the immediate future. When in fact, a lot of um, our understanding is most nature-based peoples and even in our own histories, have thought about what's important seven generations forward? How do we act today so that benefits people seven generations in the future? It's not just how do I do the best things for my family so that they survive after I die. All those are important questions. These are deeper questions. How do we tend what's human with the wild? Would we put in a dam if we're thinking seven generations ahead? Probably mm -hmm. not. Right. Thinking about how do we get power here quickly and forget about the other species that require to go up and down the river and to live in the river that's dammed. We wouldn't do things like that. Okay. This is awesome. So these four ways of knowing, these four windows of knowing, cultivating them, developing them in ourselves, opens our sensitivity to what it is to be here as a living being interconnected mm -hmm. with all the aliveness that's around us. Okay. So now I want to, I want to tie this to, to two different things. Sure. The first thing is to bring in the three realms of knowing. So material realm of knowing, pure spirit realm of knowing, and the mundus imaginalis, which you already spoke to. But yeah, maybe just flesh that out a little bit for the listeners, the three realms of knowing. Sure. And Bill calls this the three worlds. So there might be three types of consciousness, broadly speaking. And an easier way for me to say it is upper world, middle world, and underworld. And the middle world is the everyday life of the ego, where we work in love <laughs> or fail to do so. Yeah. And it's the day world as we know it and how we try to live a good, a good livelihood and be in right relationship with many things. That's a particular kind of consciousness. It's an egoic consciousness. And when I say egoic, that's not a bad thing. We have to have an ego. Most people have very wounded egos or fragmented egos and live from that place, which gives ego a bad name. But there's, in the work we're talking about of cultivating wholeness, these four windows of knowing, that's developing the mature ego. Then there's this realm of upper world or spirit consciousness, you know, which is where many people who've done meditation journeys for years often find themselves. It doesn't matter which practice it is, whether it's a centering prayer in Christianity or a Zen meditation or some other realms of 
sitting in silence or focus or kind of emptying the mind. Often people in experience of the non-dual, and depending on their tradition, practice may be intent, they experience divine love or suchness or emptiness. It's something that is true about all of us, that we're one with everything. That's a very powerful experience. I hear more about that now in people who've done psychedelic journeys to also coming to this kind of place of just abiding presence and peace in a sense of we're all one, even with the cosmos. That's another version of it. And then there's this Mundus and Arjanalis or the underworld consciousness here. And that's something, again, that we think is something that you have to be developmentally ready for to actually experience it properly and to know what to do with it. And there it's this experience where we discover soul, but it's also the realm of the dead, the realm of emotion, a lot of other things down there, and the ancestors. That when we're in that kind of realm, which we typically experience in the imagination, which includes body sensations and emotions, but typically images, we might have a sense of who we are, this soul identity, a soul encounter, a mythopoetic identity. and. Um, it's something that's really unique about us. That's what's really different from upper world experiences, which is I'm one with everything. I'm one with divine love or suchness or nothing. But this is about what's really unique about me. In Bill's case, right, it was Cocoon Weaver. He had that experience in that meadow by that lake. And my experience was different. I went out on my vision fast about, I guess about 11 years ago now. And I really had no idea who I was. I wanted to know who I was. I was really allured by this. I really felt ready. I was ready to risk everything. I'd actually pushed my whole career in in a ceremony saying, take all of it from me. I want to know who I really am. Or to use David White's phrase, I want to know the truth at the center of the image I was born with. And I had a dream. And in that dream that night, I learned that part of my image is what's called the Salmon King, which was stunning to me. I had no idea what it meant, but I knew it was really powerful. And then I remembered all the synchronicities of times where I've had experiences with rivers and salmon. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And it was eventually mirrored back to me at the end of the vision fast that I might be one who's walking as the salmon king, learning to discover what this identity is. All of our mythopoetic identities are absolutely unique. There's no one else like that, no other human like that, probably ever. And it's a calling, it's a spiritual identity, but it's more a soulful identity. And it's one that we're asked to live into the world. This is how we rewild and transform and ensoul the world and make our culture something worth living in, something that doesn't destroy the planet, something that doesn't enslave women, people of color, people not from Western cultures. It's a culture that helps us remember that the imagination might be primary rather than it's just your imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm, now I'm curious what happened, because you said 11 years ago, you came to this yeah. insight, this awareness. And so what have you discovered about Salmon King and what it means to live that into yeah. the world? Yeah, I didn't know much at the at time. <laughs> and what I sensed over the next couple of years is that Part of what this identity wants to bring through me is to rewild. So 
immediately after that, I had this great longing to blow up dams in the rivers of the Western United States in the middle world. Later, I realized that was a metaphor. Fortunately, I had children and my wife said, please don't get arrested until they're out of high school. And then I eventually learned that, oh, this is a metaphor for what I'm here to do. I'm here to help people and professions and ways of being in the world take out the dams that keeps the river from running wildly through them. So this is part of the work I do as a wild mind guide, helping people recover their wholeness and to also awaken to the earth. That's a way for me of rewilding a human. The other part of this one is that he's also meant to guide people from the estuary of their life. Because a river runs from the mountain, often the spiritual past in our culture is like an upper world path. I'm a different one. I'm a guide to these deeper realms. And I often have a sense of when people are at the estuary, like a salmon, right? A salmon swims downstream first. And it's my understanding that's the way that all of us need to swim in order to find our identity. So when I get a sense that someone's life in the middle world is coming to an end, I get really excited and I'm able to speak the truth and say, the life that you've lived up to this point is indeed over. Now it's time to go down, to swim into the ocean. And again, the ocean might be a metaphor for the deep unconscious. So that's part of who I am. I guide people to the death of their first life in the river. The other thing I'm being asked to do again as a metaphor is to swim upstream and to bring little heart-shaped eggs and leave them as I go. These are gifts of the Salmon King. Sometimes they're poems, sometimes they're essays, sometimes they're programs, sometimes they're perspectives. It's done through my imagination and through the marriage of my masculine and feminine and my creativity is like, oh, here's an opportunity to leave a gift here that might serve the bank and the bear and the rewilding of culture. Well, you're, because I know you guys speak to your mythopoetic identity, what your soul is here to do, is distinct from the delivery systems that then gets expressed through. And, And that if you know metaphorically what it is, that deeply informs whatever delivery systems you're using. The metaphor that that deeper identity informs all of your delivery systems. So I love how you're bringing both together there. Yeah. I think that's really important. And part of it is we use this term delivery system. And my sense is that almost everything in the first half of life is helping us create some of the tools for the delivery system we'll need in the second half of life, meaning the second half after soul encounter. So everything I learned in studying Christianity or English literature or science or chemistry or psychiatry and pediatrics really serves what I'm here to do as this other identity. The understanding of development, the understanding of science, the understanding of mystery. I also studied myth quite a bit. All of that was not a mistake. Sometimes it feels that way when the first life is coming to an end, kind of goes on pause until you reorient to this kind of what soul wants to bring through you. And then you realize, oh, I already have a lot of these tools. I already know a lot about these things. There might be additional education or training that you get or apprenticeship with other people who are doing somewhat similar to what your sense you're doing, which is why I retrained 
with Animus. I kind of left psychiatry behind and retrained with the Animus Valley because it wasn't about helping people fit into a dysfunctional culture by labeling them and medicating them or giving them therapy. It was this other thing. It was helping guide them into their wholeness, the connection to earth, to the discovery of their soul and the return of, with their gifts of wisdom to the culture. So I had to retrain in that. Yeah. Well, I want to bring in now the other side of the four windows of knowing. Yeah. And how, we, we talked about how are they related in the three realms of knowing? How do they fit in? And now let's talk about how they are connected to the facets of wholeness because you said you need a mature ego, right? You yeah. need to develop in, in to a certain level of maturity in your wholeness in order to really get into the grit of the underworld and like really fully be open into those diving into the the shadowy depths. So we're going to get to shadow, but first of all, let's talk about the four facets of wholeness and how they support that maturing of the ego. Sure. So this is also from Bill's book, Wild Mind and his body of work in this area. And uh, before you go there, I just want to say you are particularly well-versed and skilled in what we're about to talk about now because you're leading the charge of training people to know how to do this in their work with supporting other humans with therapists coaches guides yeah yeah so yeah to go back to the four windows of knowing one map of wholeness has been the four directions in many cultures even ancient judaic culture there was talk about wholeness as the four directions it's everywhere and by that, you mean east, south, west, north. Um, yes. North and west, and then up and down, or yeah. sun and earth, or moon and earth, depending on different ones. These directions are a symbol of wholeness. And what Bill was able to do, and really listening to people's stories from dreams and from wanders and revision fasts and different things like that, was to map out wholeness. And part of it is wholeness is associated with directions, It's associated with time of day. It's associated with season. It's associated with archetypes as well. Archetypes kind of being these very primal energetic forms and images that tend to hold a particular energy or power. And so he was able to create with other guides this nature-based map of the human psyche, which I found to be incredibly profound and much better than anything I ever received as a psychiatrist in terms of training. And it's particularly good at identifying where we might be missing wholeness. And it's also pretty good at identifying where we might be needing self-healing. So I'll get to that. So I'll just go around this map. In the north, he puts this nurturing generative one. This is the quality of caring for things or creating new things. And when we're in our nurturing generative archetype, people see us as healers, mentors, activists, warriors, all kinds of different things. There's quite a few. And there's a particular quality of love for everything. Yeah. And also, this is the heart-centered thinking window of knowing. So we're really living from our heart, and it's about a certain type of love, and it's about tending things and caring for things as they are and need to be. So that's the north, nurturing generative one. In the east, we have this unique pairing of innocent sage. And in the east, we would associate with the dawn and spring, new beginnings. It's also associated, as I mentioned before, with being present-centered and in one's senses. And this part lightens us up. It's like meditation, as you know, lightens us up a little bit. Meditation is one of the practices to cultivate the East. And there's many more. 
And the other particular quality of the East is it's okay with holding the bigger picture and it's okay with paradox. It's the pairing of the sage and the innocent. Like the, the sage knows that innocence is essential, even though there's lots of trouble ahead in one's life or has been, but it can return to one's innocence. Just be fully present and trusting. Things are such as they are, and that's just fine. A good example is the Dalai Lama, who's both wise and playful and a bit of a trickster. Other archetypes are sacred fool or the trickster. And these are important ways of being in the world. This is why we love certain comedians so much, because they can hold this kind of quality and they lighten things up. Well, I want to speak to especially bringing in, since you named it, the sacred fool, because I'm more and more coming to appreciate the innocent, the sage, the trickster, playful energy, so important. And the sacred fool, to me, is having the humility to, to, first of all, it's nonconformity, but it's also not worried about looking good, getting it right, pleasing the culture, pleasing your ego. That, to me, is the biggest place where sacred fool helps me disentangle from my own trying to please my ego. Because with Sacred Fool, I just say, made a fool of myself to totally drop the ball, totally fell on my face there. So what? Truly, so what? So I just want to shout out to the value of Sacred Fool and developing that. The Sacred Fool knows that everything's a cosmic joke, including (laughs) themselves. Yeah. (laughs) They really laugh at themselves and at others and say, None of this. The emperor has no clothes. Like it's all, it's just there. And uh, I also wanted to add that the North is also humble, but it's also bold, right? We think about people in our world now tend to be really seen as, I don't know, culture changers. And they're really not. They're, in my sense, people who are making the culture worse. People who are bold and brash and who don't really know what's worth doing, but they're doing it for the attention or for the, the money power. You know, nurturing generative one is bold, but they're also humble. It's the pairing of those two. So it's not like, look at me. It's not even look at the work. It's like, this is the work that needs to be done. And it's dangerous work. I'm going to bring it into the world. And these people that I'm talking about, they know what they're here to do. And it comes from mystery. It's not about them. It's mystery wanting to bring something through them into the world to make the world a better place for the future ones, for the present, but also for the future. Ooh, I love that, that humbleness as the willingness to be a servant of mystery. Yeah. 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 Okay, so we got the North and the East. Yeah, the North is not really that dangerous to the culture. East is becoming not that dangerous. It's much more common for people to realize the importance of meditation or mindfulness. What we go next on this map is the South. In the South, again, a window of knowing was embodied emotion, and we associate it with Midday, like heat of the day, and with summer, sensuality is an association with this. Sexuality, the love is eros. It's wild sexual energy here, which eros meaning not just with another human or with self, but possible with the world. But it's also this embodied emotion quality again. When we're in this one, the archetype is wild and indigenous. We feel self-willed. We feel instinctual again, and we trust our instincts. And we're not as reactive. It's, oh, this allures me. This is what I'm here to do. It's that great phrase, letting the soft animal body love what it loves. That and wild meaning self-willed. 
oh, I'm not going to conform. I'm not going to rebel. I'm here to do this. This is what brings me alive and what I'm good at. The indigenous is the second part of that one, which means belonging to earth. It's not meant to be a slight to indigenous people anywhere, but it's a quality that all of us have as human beings. And it's an important one for people raised in this Western techno-industrial growth overculture to encounter so that they feel their primary place of belonging is earth. When we access the wild place, embodied emotion, and know our connection to earth, we will not tolerate what corporations and others are doing to the earth because we fully feel what's happening. We will demand changes. We won't participate in the systems that continue to do this. We'll opt out of them and find a new way. And these are more dangerous qualities. They're dangerous to the society that we live in currently. We're emotionally unintelligent because it's good for business. There's not much protesting. Think about how many years it's taken for people to realize that climate change is not just real, but inevitable, set in motion, and will destroy much of what we love. Terrifying, heartbreaking, but we keep it at bay. Oh, somebody else will fix it. We don't really feel that because we're numb. So this is a really important quality. And often just say, historically, this might have been the realm of where women are allowed to be, but also criticized for being. It tends to be a more feminine place. But it's really important for whoever you identify as to access this way of being. I'm also feeling the personal block to cultivating this self is yeah. that the ego is very committed to comfort. And if you really let your heart start to feel um, the pain of what we're doing to animals, to plants, to the earth, the suffering that's happening at the hands of ourselves. If you really start to feel that, the heat's going to get turned up. It's going to become so overwhelming and uncomfortable. So ego's pretty invested in, okay, you can feel it a little bit, but then let's get that in check. But I hear what you're saying is to cultivate and embody your wild indigenous self is to cultivate your capacity to feel your heartbreak Mm -hmm. because you're cultivating your capacity to feel the love for that which you are an embodied part of. Yeah, the love and the grief. Yeah. Yeah, and grief is a dangerous emotion. It's not well expressed in our culture. A lot of depression that I was seeing as a psychiatrist was unmetabolized grief about all different kinds of things. So. Yeah. Yeah. And we could go, <laughs> we should go off down that road. And I would love to, but okay, reining it in, reining yeah. it in. Let's go to the other facet of wholeness here, then, which I mentioned is the window of knowing is the deep imaginal. And the direction is the West. Here in West tends to be mysterious in most things. It's where the sun sets, it's dusk, it's autumn, it's where things die. It also is a time of romance. And that might be one way to go into here. It's kind of a romantic period where. This part of our psyche is fine with the ending of things. The ending of things is actually beautiful. We don't resist death, this part of our psyche. And we have some cryptic and numerous archetypes here. It's the dark muse beloved guide to soul psychopomp. In this place, things are really mysterious. And as David White says, place that asks questions that shouldn't go away, questions that can make or unmake a life. This is the place in some ways of composting one's life leaving home, 
of saying yes to what's in the dark. We spend so much of our time living in the light, living from our heads. This place is not that. It's a place that feels radically enchanting and also a bit dangerous and is really essential both for discovering what earth is and also for going on this journey of soul initiation. So it's an incredible part of our wholeness that has historically been pushed to the side, criticized, called Wu. So would you say that cultivating this facet of wholeness, the dark muse, the psychopomp, the guide to soul, I know you guys say the magician, and I really resonate with that because to me, magician is creatively engaging and interacting with mystery and what is to manifest and alchemize things. And, And so would you say that this facet of self is about having the willingness to go into the shadowy places or having the capacity when you come into touch with this question it's probably both like one way to think about archetypes is they're in some ways and every character in a dream too they're like an autonomous entity that has their own way of experiencing the dream world or your world or their own understanding of what they want and in some ways, we're really invited into experiencing the world outside of our ego. So the West is really an expert in that. And it's also the place where we find the portal to this underworld or the place of souls. And it's an experience that is always, for me, it's always a bit surprising what's coming there. And often what I've noticed is that we'll just use the term beloved or animal or muse that is often projected on other people in our middle world lives, projected, meaning there's a part of ourself that's absolutely beautiful, makes us feel alive and touch with the sacred and really erotic or even romantic. And we find that in another, and it turns out that they're not that. It's a bit of a projection. We need them to hold that until we discover that, oh, we have this quality, these archetype, these images within us that want to be in relationship with us. Okay, we have set the stage for Mm. talking about shadow work because shadow work is the world of the imaginal, it's the underworld, it's the work of soul. Yeah. That language is a little bit different. Uh, The underworld of soul, often you experience it through the imaginal. And the West is the window of knowing is the deep imaginal. And I might put a broader term on shadow is the place of the deep unconscious, places that are repressed. Something that Bill said in Wild Mind, so I would love you to say more about this. Shadow Mm -hmm. is whatever the ego isn't. Can you Mm -hmm. help people understand that? (laughs) Yeah, it might be parts that the ego would deny is true about itself, but are true of the larger psyche. So part of it, it's like, There's these two concepts of repression and um, suppression, right? And this is just in terms of like depth psychologists would talk about. There's parts of ourself that we know about, don't like, and are too painful that we suppress, but we're aware of them. Then there's these other parts of ourself that in some ways are too dangerous to our ego, that our ego fully represses, puts out of awareness entirely. We don't know about it. 
Okay, so we're holding that anything that is in the shadow is actually not just true, but important and valuable to be in possession of. Yeah, to be aware of. And so how is that so, like if some of the unsavory qualities of self that we might say, like greed or domination or things like that, why is it important for us to own those aspects of self? Yeah, there's maybe two definitions that need to be added in here for clarification first. In the shadow, there are negative or dark shadowy things, like sinister things that we'd never want to live in the world, like a patriarch or a pedophile or a murderer. Each of us are capable of both those things. When we think we're not, or we're adamantly denying that we are, is more likely when we get hijacked by something like that. So that's one thing. And then there's these golden elements in our shadow that seem too big, too divine, too sacred. And often these are things that we project on others. It often gets projected on like movie stars, right? There's a quality, I'm in love with them, I want to, et cetera. But it also happens in our day world. And sometimes it's a positive projection and sometimes a negative projection in the sense that if I'm around someone, I'll just use an example because it's in my field and it's relevant. 11 years ago, I had, when I first started reading David White's poetry, I was just like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And then I had a dream. Actually, I was supposed to meet David White in the front of a church. And uh, like it always worked me. It's like, I wish I were a poet and a speaker and a cultural change agent the way he was, but I'm not him. I don't have that great voice, that Irish accent and that great head of hair that he has. And just this huge, these poems that are just like magical. And uh, so I had both a big golden projection and a little bit of a negative projection because uh, irritated me. I was like amazed and irritated at the same time. This is a quality of who I am that showed up in dream that was dangerous to me to always say yes to the poet of me. One is I loved poetry when I was a kid, but I was threatened to get beaten up by other boys. So I, I hit it. And then when I found it again in like high school and college, I mentioned I wanted to do that. And my parents said, we're not sending you to college for that. You're not going to make money in that. So again, I partly hit it. So I partly repressed it and partly suppressed it. But it keeps coming back that this is part of what I'm here to do. And it's a golden aspect of myself. I never feel more alive than when the muse is writing poetry through me. And I find reasons not to do it. Yeah. Aspects of our wholeness are in our shadow. For most people, the deep imaginal is in their shadow. Many emotions are in their shadow. And again, they might have a charge around people who act a certain way. Like sometimes we see women who are really fine with being emotional and in their bodies who are sensuous and they get projections from men and women on them. Usually it's negative or alluring. I wish I were just like So this is a sense that there's a quality within us that is being activated when we come close to someone who has a quality similar to what we've denied in ourselves. That's a tip-off that, oh, there might be something here. And it's dangerous to my ego to be a poet, to be sensual, to be erotic, to be emotional. Yeah. That's the shadow work part. Yeah. And so, hence, you need all facets of your wholeness to do shadow work because you're going to encounter resistance and you're going to ego is going to rise up and the more wholeness you have the more equipped you are to not be hijacked by the ego 
when it rises up to try and shut the whole thing down. If you're willing to go claim some of this back, to take responsibility yeah. for it, to take ownership of it, that's going to feel super dangerous to ego. Because yeah. ego was invested in you not owning this. So it's going to try and shut you down. But if you have these facets of wholeness developed in yourself, that's going to enable you to not have ego take over and shut the whole process down. Okay. But I love something Bill Plotkin said was when faced with dark darkness, difficult mm -hmm. challenge, psycho-spiritually dangerous possibility, you have two choices to flee or not flee. And if not fleeing, then face the dark powerfully with mm. all facets of your wholeness. And what he said that I really love is you can call in allies, you know, spiritual helpers, whatever, but not for protection, not to surround you with white light and all of that, but to provide encouragement, companionship, guidance, right? Yeah. But it's still you. You don't need protection because you're going to find yourself. You don't need to protect yourself from yourself. Yeah. It's similar if you remember in one of those Star Wars movies when Yoda invites Luke Skywalker into the tree where he's going to discover something about himself. And he's like, you don't need your lightsaber. You need to go vulnerably and curious. And you might find a certain amount of energy, power, or alacrity, or a lost part of the self that's absolutely essential for who you are in the world. It's incredibly transformational. It, yeah. it literally went into the shadows because it wasn't welcomed or supported, like my story about poetry. You say you're a poet. I don't know. I'm not going to have any friends. Yeah. If we think it's going to cost us belonging, love, yeah. well-being in the environment that we're in, that's when it becomes dangerous. And that's when we say, mm -mm, disown, get rid of that. And yeah. often we do this unconsciously. So we're not aware. We're not suppressing it. It's repressed. It's just gone. Right. Then we are around people who are that way, and we are either like really attracted to them or really like this really strong charge, especially around people we don't know very well. And it's like an immediate thing, like there's something here about them. Yeah. And that's a that's a clue, that intense emotional reaction to somebody, either either good, feeling attracted to them or feeling repelled by them is a good clue that there is something in your shadow that's being revealed to you. So so now let's talk about projection because that's what that is. But there's a subcategory of projection that's transference. And yeah. so I'm wondering if you first can talk about the distinction between projection and transference. Sure. Projection is really the putting of a quality that you're denying in yourself onto someone else and only seeing it in them and having an emotional reaction to it. Transference is a bit different. It's also about not seeing the other clearly for who they are, because in some ways they remind you of a previous relationship that you have unfinished business with, and you're treating this new person as if they were that other person that you didn't fully resolve the relationship. Obviously, the most typical one that like Freud or whoever would talk about was the mother transference. You're treating women as your mother and they're not your mother, but there's something about them that you're trying to do that you actually couldn't do with your mother. So it's the same thing with transference. Sometimes we can't see other people we're in relationship with. We see them as an opportunity to heal something from our past that we couldn't fully heal in that relationship with this new person. And so we treat them not like who they are, but as if they're this other person. 
Yeah. And if you become aware of that, then you can do your healing work, use the transference to understand what you're doing and heal that incomplete relationship or whatever was wounded in you by it so that you can then see that person clearly. Yeah, exactly. There might be a new opportunity to do something in the current relationship that you couldn't do in the previous relationship. Yeah. And I want to name actually a very interesting experience I had in my life of this, but not directly. So Mm. Mary Tyler Moore, um, when the Mary (laughs) Tyler Moore show was on, and she was like this wonderful woman and happy and smart and successful and all of that. And, And I was maybe... Oh, 16 when that show was in its height. And I was so enamored with her. And I think for me, she represented like the perfect kind of adult female figure, mother figure. And then I saw the movie Ordinary People. (laughs) Sure. And I was gutted because she portrays this completely dysfunctional, mentally unstable, um, cruel person. And I'm like, oh my God, what happened to like this? I could see the projection by how devastated I was to see this other image of her. But I'm appreciating like, this is the way that we put people on pedestals, for example, in in an incomplete relationship. And then we meet an adult and, and then we put them on this pedestal and then holy smokes, if they come, if they do anything that is fallible or human, we're enraged that they have let us down and disappointed us because we decided they were this beyond reproach, perfect substitute for the imperfect being that we have. Is this a good example of of transference? Yeah, that's a good example. And more typically, it's in intimate relationships where you feel like this is the one that's going to complete you, to steal a line from a movie as well. Oh, you complete me. And then you realize that all the positive stuff you projected on them, some of it's true, but some of it's true about you, but you haven't encountered it yet. And also the stuff that you start projecting on them that's your own shit is maybe not true, but it's actually true about you, but you can't hold it. So this is where true relationship begins when you begin to pull back these projections or you begin to realize that there's a transference here. That allows you to really see the other for who they are and for you to do your own work. Yeah. And and so let's talk about that because I know I just did a course called Sweet Darkness with Animus, which is all about confronting, in, encountering your shadow, taking responsibility for it, claiming it back. And so there's a series of questions that you guys have somebody work with when when you understand you are in a projection. And clue one, I am having an intense aversion or attraction to this being. And so no. then you have this process the series of questions that you can work with to help get clear what's happening there and take responsibility and reclaim what is yours. And so I'd like to name these questions and have you speak a little to them. If sure, that's... go for it. Okay. So so the first question, first you understand this is happening, and then you start to ask yourself, okay, what emotions are evoked when I sit in front of this person? So what's important about wow. that? Well, that's the ego's immediate response to the projection. Is it allurement? Is it desire? Is it disgust? Is it rage? Yeah. Okay. So e- even just I'm appreciating just the the transparency of 
taking responsibility for your emotional response. Yeah. Because we tend to think, I feel this because of how you're being. So what you're doing with this question is, no, I feel this. Yeah. Yeah. And then what qualities am I projecting onto them? Yeah, that's a trickier one. Requires a bit of reflectivity. And it's often qualities that, again, would have been not welcomed in our family of origin or our religion. And so in some sense, they have to be cast off somewhere. And then we spend the rest of our life discovering them and others and not really owning them or cultivating them ourselves. Yeah. So that's what's at the root of it. And I guess what I'm for the person who's still, they're just coming to understand this. That question is meant to help them. Like what judgments am I making about this person? Oh, I see. Yeah. So that's meant, that question is meant to begin the process of pulling back the projection and thinking, oh, the charge here might tell me something about myself. What is it I'm seeing in them that could be true about me? Yeah, like I'm seeing this person as needy or as clinging or as narcissistic or as yeah. self-centered. Yeah, or here's a good one. Like, they just won't shut up. You know, that that's one that commonly comes up. Like, that person just talks all the time. And then you wonder, huh, the pulling back and the question is, is that something that I do all the time that I'm oblivious of? And if no, is it like, well, I'm wondering, this might be your third question, so I might let you go there, but could be like, is that some sort of quality or resource I need to step into in my life that I find just dangerous in the other kind of disgusting or against norms? Yeah, like, because I think here's where it gets really tricky for people who aren't well-versed in shadow work. I think what confuses us in our mind is if I... And, and seeing someone and saying they talk too much or they're needy or something. Why do I want to claim this for myself? That's where we get confused. But this, no. this is where I think what I love, like these questions are so skillful that you guys have us ask because you name the qualities. Even if you have a judgment about the qualities at that point, it's fine. Sure. You're yeah. just naming them, right? Yeah. You are this, 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 and this. Okay. And then you come back to the emotions that you feel in front of this person and ask, are these emotions familiar? And if so, why? So what are we looking for there? Well, part of it, it's, it's looking for, is this something that's happened over and over again? Or is this the way my family treats people who are like this? This is very common in terms of people who want to be bold in the world. And People in the American Midwest told, who are you to think you're that big? They hear that a lot when they're young. So they become not exploratory, not bold. In Australia, they call it the tall poppy syndrome. So they get cut down for standing out. And here it's the same thing. It's possible that uh, some of the qualities here are really important qualities that are boldness to go back to what we were talking about before and oh. It's better to just be a conformist and go along with it rather than speak your own truth and shine in your own powers. So yeah. When someone else is doing it, you're like, Ugh, how, how dare they? Oh, wait a second. Now let me go back. How is this familiar? It could be from when you were shut down, when you were embodying some of these characteristics, or how you really longed to embody these characteristics but gave up on it. Yeah. Like how this worked for me in Sweet Darkness was I was... I was projecting onto someone that they were always having needs. And then 
and then not aware of their impact of like when they wanted what they wanted, that that impacted other people around them. Mm-hmm. And and when I got into the question of, because I felt irritated, frustrated, disregarded, uncared for, all of that, right? So then you ask the question, well, are these familiar? Yeah. And, and it's like, yeah, because my alcoholic, warring, yeah. fighting adults in my life were not attending to my needs. I, I didn't have like permission to have needs because no one was going to pay attention. And I felt uncared for and I felt disregarded. So zoom, all of a sudden I get out of this person in front of me because I take the emotional content and understand, oh, this is about way more than just this person in this minute doing this. And you, you start to come back into understanding the origin of because now you're asking in this familiar experience, what qualities did I disown? Yeah. And maybe it would have been dangerous for you to really speak up and ask for your needs to be met because you probably already knew they weren't going to be met. Or it could have been more physically dangerous. It could have been more shame or abuse or whatever. So then we learn not to do that. When others are asking for that, we're like, Ugh. Yeah, it's because it's like, oh, I disowned having a voice. I disowned having needs. I'm not going to have needs, or I'm certainly not going to have the vulnerability to ask anyone else to care for my needs. I will, I will take care of that. And and so now I'm not in connection with others saying, I'm going to let you care for me. I'm going to ask you to support me here. Mm -mm, Nope. Because what if they say no? So screw that. I'm never doing that. It opens up that old wound again, maybe too. Yeah. Like it's dangerous to have needs. It's dangerous to have a voice. So it's such a great formula, these questions of, oh, you come back in. Okay, but now we have the three big, the really big gun questions. Do you know what they are? Do you just want to bring them in? No, I'll let you go. Okay, okay. So how would I change if I absorbed and assimilated some of these qualities that I have disowned, if I embodied them in my life? How would I change and what's at risk if I do? And what's at risk if I don't? Mm-hmm. So speak to those three. Well, it's shifting your way that you've worked in the world. Just to use your example, like I'm not going to ask for my needs because I see that as being weak and needy and disrupting others. Well, if you're going to change that, you're violating your own understanding of your persona in the world that's worked enough, right? So it's a bit edgy for you to do that because you might criticize yourself. For, well, that means I'm really weak. That means I'm needy, when in fact, that's maybe a misunderstanding, is that we all have needs and we want interpersonal connection. We might need to ask people from time to time for what we really need, but it's too it's been too dangerous for you as a child to do that. So it's stretching us a little bit there, and it makes makes us feel uncomfortable to stretch that way. And there's the flip side. I might feel more connected. <laughs> I might feel more vulnerable. People might find me less of an island or whatever it might be that that others might experience of you by not voicing these things. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the what's at risk if I do and what's at risk if I don't, because what's at risk if I do is all the safety that I have created by disowning Mm -hmm. these aspects of self. But that powerful what's at risk if I don't. And that's your wholeness, 
right? Your like true connection, true belonging, true safety, which I always like to put in quotations because sure. What would you say about safety? What would you say about true safety? True safety. I don't know about that one. Um, well, maybe there's nothing ever, ever true about safety, but there's, when we come into the world, we come in with inherent trust in everything. And we just begin to lose it over time unless we cultivate parts of our wholeness. Actually, we can return to that part of us that has inherent trust. And oftentimes when we lose our capacity, especially when we're young, when we're so dependent on others, this is part of the challenge of being a human. We're the most dependent species there is. We're dependent on our parents or community for like 16 to 18 years. That's so unusual in the animal kingdom, right? Where most of them are gone at a couple months. So we're really dependent. We have to make particular decisions of how do we survive in this child-rearing context, even though it might be atypical or non-supportive. We have to make these agreements with ourselves to be smaller and to not ask for what we need because we sense could be more dangerous or it'd be too painful to hear again, you don't matter. You don't matter. And that's the risk here of again saying, if I choose not to voice my needs, then I'm reiterating that I don't matter. And what I'm risking is if I ask for my needs and they're not met, then it's painful. But it's different when you're doing that as an adult and you're more resourced than when you're doing it as a seven-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love what you're pointing to here. So the reason that we have so much shadow material is in part because of how long developmentally we are dependent on others. That's part of it. What what else? What else would you say? I'd say that's part of it. And part of it is we live in a very unhealthy society and that much of our society primarily wants us just to conform to the powers that be so that business as usual can go on and the power structures can remain as they are so that people are quiet, meek, they buy what they're told and they don't disrupt or protest. That continues this industrial growth society that's destroying the planet. When if we're a whole individual and we had healthier parents and we had access to wild nature and encouraged to be in our imagination and talked into our emotions, that's a very different person approaching adolescence. It's easier for them to be more authentic and wild and connected to what's true for them. And they're more likely not to opt into the current system as it is and find their own way to create a healthier culture and a healthier way of being in the world while they're preparing themselves for this kind of descent to soul that we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know that you are a father of twin adolescent boys. Yeah. And so as a parent, what would you offer to parents raising children to help them develop in a more whole way than our sure. culture would have them develop? A couple of things. One is really encouraging access to wild nature. That's so important, especially from like age four to 10 pre-puberty, just access to wild nature, and especially if they can have it unsupervised and with other children, just to explore it that way. And earlier than that, in infancy, it's more about really trying to be healed enough in your own parenting experience so that you're not trying to do not what your parent did or to do something entirely different so that you actually can see the child for who they are and be responsive as attuned caregivers and trying to say as much as possible 
and marrying back to them their emotions and their curiosity and what they're interested in. So actually saying, oh, I see that you want to go out there. I think that would be fine. Or I see that you're curious about that dog, but we don't know that dog. I wonder if we should wait a little bit here. Or when they're really frustrated, it's like, you are so frustrated that you can't do this right now. I see that. It is frustrating, isn't it? Those are just very minimal kind of tips. But really doing our own personal work before we have children is really important. Most of us don't do enough of it or even know that we need to. And then all of a sudden we're in parenting and partnering together. And so I got to do my work here because parenting usually brings up places where we were failed. And then we don't want to fail our kids in that way. So we might see what happened there and how would I have done it differently? The way partly I parent my kids, especially when they're adolescents, is I tell stories about when I was at a particular point of dilemma and my parents didn't meet me where I wanted to be met, but they shared something else and that I'm trying to do it better. I may not do it perfect, but here's what I'm seeing for you. So they hear the story and they hear the failure or sometimes the success. And then they, then I offer what I'm seeing in them. And then I am just see what happens with that. So my kids are, it's really interesting. They're not at all like my wife and I. My wife and I were great scientists and great at math and great at sports. My kids have no interest in those things. They're artists and musicians, right? And so for me, growing up when I was interested in poetry and music, to hear that you can't make a living in that, I had to eat that and say, oh, early on, I saw my son Dylan, like he's an artist. At age two, it was very clear. I'd, here's an interesting story, actually, about how our children start us on our journeys and how we can start them. When I was age two, I remember a particularly traumatic event with my mother where I felt like she didn't want me, didn't want the entirety of me. She was actually grieving the death of my older sister. And there was something about me that triggered her. And I didn't want that to happen to my son, Dylan. So I said to Dylan, Dylan, he was lying on my chest getting ready for bed. I said, I just love absolutely everything about you. And he stood up, he walked on my chest over to me and he kissed me on the lips. <laughs> it was just the most beautiful moment of connection. About two days later, he came up to me, he said, daddy, I'm an artist. And I said, I see that. I've been seeing that for a while. And your daddy is just not very good, even with stick figures, <laughs> but I'm happy to support you because that's what I see you becoming. And I'm happy that you're that. So ever since then, he's just never felt self-conscious about art, about drawing, about making things from found objects, from pottery. And now he's really into music. And it's like, I feel totally supportive. Do I worry that that's not maybe the best financial choice? Of course. But he has lots of other capacities and I'm totally supportive of what he thinks his first career will be knowing that he'll discover more as he continues. So that's one kind of thing is just kind of like seeing what this child is already doing, what their unique gifts, talents, capacities, interests are, supporting that, not trying to make them fit into what we think is best for them or to take care of us later or something like that. In Nature and the Human Soul, Bill's written these incredible chapters on the first three stages of development, which brings us from infancy and toddlerhood early childhood and adolescence. And I think they're actually profound and so much different than what I learned in pediatrics and child psychiatry, to be honest with you. And so, Gar, will you, can you say what those are? Well, yeah, I've been dancing a little bit around them. 
But like the important part of infancy is the, the infant brings a unique gift to the world, which is kind of luminous presence. Like they just accept everything when they're raised in a healthy family. They're just open and curious and they're fun to be out with. Sure, they have moments where they're frustrated or irritated or sleepy, but that's one of their gifts. And the, the task here, the infant doesn't have to complete. It's really the parent, which is to support the development of their ego so that it's whole enough, wild enough. They haven't lost too much of themselves by this point, and they're functional. Then they move into what we call early childhood, and the archetype for this one is the explorer in the garden. So children should be exploring what they're called to and the things that are really important for them to explore, not just what schools teach in terms of history, math, language, myth, etc., but it's also these wild or what we call the nature-based tasks of development, which is exploring wild nature. This is what I was talking about, unimpeded time in semi-wild or wild or parks or backyards. That's incredibly healthy for human development. Exploring their wild imagination, that's also incredibly valuable. Exploring their wild emotions, that's a place where we could all do a little better. And kids need help in understanding their emotional states, talked into them, often labeled helping them understand what they tell them about themselves, why they're feeling certain things. Yeah. I'm just right now for just a sidebar thinking about yeah. timeouts, like yeah, timeouts, you go by yourself into your room is yeah. not, is it, saying, and don't come back until you've got yourself sorted out versus <laughs> let me sit with you and help you understand your frustration, your irritation, your tantrum that you're having. It's, sure. it's a time out. I don't know. What do you think about timeouts? Well, that's a, that's a much more complicated answer because there's certain ways to do things when children are at risk for hurting themselves or others during some behaviors of how do you support that. But really speaking with them, realizing that it's your opportunity as a parent to help them understand their frustration and to understand the context of which that frustration was in, that you're not necessarily angry at them for having emotions, but you're really curious about what's really happening here. So yeah. that's part, it's a, partly it's a different stance of being curious and supportive rather than being primarily punitive. Yeah. Which often we fall into because of the way most of us were parented. Yeah. Right. And the fourth thing was exploring our wild bodies, exploring our wild bodies. That's, that's an important thing for children to discover. How does my body work? How do other people's body works? What's it like to run? What's it like to swim? What's it like to imagine that I'm a cheetah? That's blending the body and the emotional and the imagination. All of these things are really helpful and promote human development. And you might also hear that some of these nature-based tasks of early childhood are related to what's on the nature-based map of the human psyche, our senses, our imagination, our bodies, and our emotion. So some of that holing work is unfinished work from early childhood. Yeah. So and that, and, yeah. and it's hard to do that as an adult because we started to calcify this separation from those ways of being, but it's almost like a, it's like a shell. So as it, as oh. it, if it stops in childhood and you try to pick it up again in adulthood, yeah, it's like you need a, like a chisel to crack some of that calcification so you can get at it. Yeah. And one of the things I didn't mention here, the gift of early childhood is a sense of wonder asking these questions about the cosmos and about ants and about earthquakes and about oceans and 
These are naturally what they're curious about and what they're drawn to. We can reclaim that later. It usually takes a couple of days away from the office or the cell phone. <laughs> but when we're immersed in wild nature. Sometimes we just experience awe, which is a form of wonder. Right? Wow, especially in beautiful places. Or just getting that calcification off after three days in a nature setting. It's, oh, now I remember what this is like. So that's important things for parents and for educators and for society to know that it's not just the textbook stuff that we need to learn about or prepare them to have a job, which is often what primary and secondary education, it's really about how do they become whole humans. Actually, and part of what's really missing are some of these nature-based tasks, as Bill describes in that book. In adolescence, it's exploring your authenticity. And as you would imagine, usually we talk about these tasks of an adult, but it's actually an adolescent, which is being good in sexual relations. That's a task of adolescence. Being fine with differences, negotiating emotions, nonviolent communication, finding a first way of earning a living or someplace that's somewhat authentic and also serves your people and also might get you paid a little bit. Unfortunately, you have to have that in our culture. All those things are really important tasks in this stage. And it's really about authenticity. It's really about choosing to blaze my own trail. And the archetype that Bill uses here on the, this stage is the thespian at the oasis. The world is my oyster, and I'm going to choose what I'm drawn to, and I'm going to do the best that I can there. That's just a phase, too, though. That's just adolescence. It's not meant to go for the rest of one's life. It's meant to go for a period of time until it's, oh, that, too, phases out. And that means you've done enough as an adolescent, first adolescent or first adult, to wander into the mysteries, that journey of soul initiation, as I was talking about earlier. So in our culture, most people are not eco-awakened to go back to the beginning. They're not ready for the soul's journey, and it's primarily because they don't have access to presence, emotion, and their imagination, and wild nature. So it's those kind of qualities within the self and their connection to wild nature that moves development forward so that eventually they're ready to go on this journey. So you're saying connecting with your authenticity is a phase of development that you move beyond? Beyond, yeah. In adolescence, it's authenticity from a fairly healthy ego. But you don't know what you're here to do from the soul's perspective. That's why you go on this journey of soul initiation, which is to find something that's even more powerful, even more threatening to the ego. It requires dying to who you've thought you've been for many years. It might require you to wander away from who you've been, to get lost in midlife or even earlier, and to go into a zone unknown. And hopefully, during a mystical experience on a vision fast, a psychedelic journey or trance dance or some kind of other non-or state of consciousness, you might hear your name or you might realize the pattern you've been living your whole life. This metaphor might come to you. Yeah, and that's a different way of authenticity. It doesn't come from the ego. It comes from the soul. And then the second half of life is living into that from the authentic soul identity. Mm. Yeah, And the way that we kind of language it, which I think is really brilliant, is that ego... One reason we have these stages is that ego needs to learn skills because it's really good at manifesting things in the world. Soul doesn't manifest. 
but it tells you what's important to do in the world. You need a healthy ego to get ready to go on the journey and a healthy ego to help manifest the soul image and the soul powers and the soul destiny in the second half of life. And that's the marriage of the ego and soul that some of the mystics and the poets talk about. So the first half is coming into awareness of your authentic individual egoic self. Yeah. Yeah. And then the second half of your life is about embodying the authenticity of your soul self. Is yeah, that? Yeah. That's right. And there's this one stage of development, which is about not having an identity at all. In the middle of those two? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. In the middle of those, you know, Bill has this archetype of the wander in the cocoon. So when you're wandering, you don't know where the path is. You're just wandering, right? And you're, sometimes you feel lost and sometimes you feel terribly lost. And sometimes you realize, wow, I wish I could have gone back to that old life, but I'm called to something different. There has to be a deeper understanding of why I'm here in the world. And by severing one's identity and practicing these things we call soul craft practices and living a more soul-centered life that's usually slower paced, you might discover who you are. So this is a phase of development that's kind of like what happens to the caterpillar, right? The caterpillar usually goes through three to five boltings. It eats, it gets bigger, it sheds the skin, it eats, it gets bigger, it sheds the skin. Finally, it gets to this place, it can't get any bigger, and it begins to go and weaving this cocoon or this chrysalis. What happens in the chrysalis is there's certain enzymes that break down the caterpillar entirely so it cannot become a caterpillar again. Bill calls this caterpillar soup. And then there's something that also begins happening time-wise, mythically. There's cells in the caterpillar called imaginal cells that begin putting back the caterpillar, not to be a caterpillar, but to be the butterfly. Actually, the caterpillar has to totally die to who it is, live in this stage in the cocoon, not knowing what it's meant to be, but then to reemerge from the chrysalis in the next stage is the butterfly. It's very similar kind of metaphor for our lives. We have to live, get bigger, more authentic, and then we come to this like, oh, it's time to compost my life or go into a cocoon or to die to who I think I am. And it's not a weekend thing. It's often many months. Often it's longer than that, sometimes more than a couple of years during the stage where you feel lost, but you're also discovering the enchantedness of the world and of your own earth and of your own psyche through dreams and other encounters. You might hear this name or remember this mythopoetic image that you're really meant to remember. So this stage is about remembering who you were born to be from the soul's perspective. And it's a great stage to be in, and it's hard, and you need to be fully resourced. Sometimes the trap door opens. People sometimes don't say, oh, I hear about this, and then they enter into it consciously with a guide or with an organization. Most often, people might just fall into a trap door, and they feel like life is over, and they're not resourced, and they don't know what's happening, and they might go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a pastoral counselor who doesn't understand what's happening either and might try and rescue them from the stage, get them back functioning in that other world. Yeah, it's not meant to be. It's really meant to die completely and to be reborn. Yeah. That's a different authenticity. I I mean, I have so many different questions that I have, but I'm just trying to find one, the one, because you named two very different experiences 
of the same thing. So when you're leaving ego authenticity, you're wandering, you're lost, but you're moving toward a deeper soul authenticity in that place in between, you're not going to have either. You're not going to have a sense of, of, I know who I am and what I am and what I'm doing. And, and so there's both the, the way you're doing it intentionally because you understand this is the path and I'm willing to go wander. And then you just said, then there's the trap door where the bottom falls out and, and you're not supported with people who understand what's happening and can guide you. And my question was, and I don't know if you can answer it for both those scenarios, but yeah. what what would you offer to people as a support if they're in that experience, that in-between experience? Like, yeah. what's a Yeah, I think hand read rail? it. Sure. If, well, I don't know about handrail, but you might want to read one of Bill's books, specifically probably The Journey of Soul Initiation, Nature and the Human Soul or Soulcraft. Or if you feel like you know where you are, but you're unresourced, you might read Wild Mind, or you might find a guide to these terrains, right? There have always been spiritual guides to these terrains, whether they were in mystery schools or indigenous peoples, they always had initiators or shaman or different people like that, who've been through this terrain and who are called by mystery to guide this terrain. There's many of us, that's what we do at Animus. We're called, all the guides are called by mystery to be these soul initiation guides. And it's, they're rare right now. Hopefully not in the future, but they're rare right now. So reading can help finding a soul guide to help you assess where you are and what might be helpful for you to move more deeply into your destiny and discover who you are. And also coming on a program can be very helpful. Animus runs probably 40 programs a year in North America and probably 20 else around the world and very many online as well. These are opportunities to step in and experience. It's not really thinking about it or understanding it or overstanding. It's really experience some of these practices and getting a bit of guidance on how to continue on your own journey. Okay. I have one more question that, and then I want to come back to specifically how you support people in this. I don't even know how to ask this question and I'm, this may never make the podcast, but I'm just like, are are you saying that every human is destined to come to this in-between place? They're going to experience it in many different ways, but it's part of your journey here. Or is it possible to completely stay on the surface and never even come into an awareness of this place? Yeah. Like, what's the difference between somebody having a psychotic breakdown and being in this place? I guess that's my question. Well, there's two questions there. Yeah. So it's yes, everyone who's born who has is fairly healthy neurologically, we'll put it. Okay. A genetic syndrome or something like that has the innate capacity to discover their soul image and to live from that place. If we lived in a very healthy nature-based culture, They had people in all of these different stages of development. All of us would discover it unless tragedy happened, you know, killed by whatever. In our society, very few are even equal awakened and even less go on the journey because they're not ready. Our culture does not support it. Our society does not support it. Actually put barriers up to it. And so this is why we need to radically rethink religion, education parenting, psychology. So they were actually supporting people's innate human wholeness. And so they're getting ready to go on the journey. 
that's part of the question is that all of us have this capacity. All of us have a soul image. Very few people are ever ready for the journey just because of the society we live in. It's a heartbreak. The second question might be, what about the psychotic thing? Well, it might be that sometimes people who have a predisposition to psychosis, family history of psychosis, they might experience the imaginal without enough wholeness. So they can't understand that this is a part of their own psyche. Their ego might get inflated and further fragmented and they lose touch with reality. So that's a possibility of what happens for some people when they have psychosis. Like, you know, sometimes people have, you know, say, for example, mystical experiences of meeting Buddha or the Christ. And there's a way to say, just as Jesus said, I and the Father are one without being psychotic. It's just knowing that I'm one with everything. I'm one with the Godhead. That's a very mystical thing to be said. But when, when someone doesn't have a healthy enough ego, it's very fragmenting. Right, they can't take care of themselves, etc. Yeah, and so in either case, if you're feeling absolutely adrift, get support. I think that's a very good thing, and to get either from a soul-centered psychotherapist or from a soul guide. Yeah, and and so let's talk about the work that you do with people and how people can get in touch with you if they would like to explore this with a experience guide. Sure. So I think partly it, I'd encourage people to look at the Anonymous Valley Institute website. We have about 20 very incredibly talented guides. Not every guide's for everyone. Some people want same gendered guides. Some people want someone who've had a similar profession. Some want some who are parenting or someone who's not straight, cis, like I am and white. That's fine. There's guides for everyone there. And what we do is we work by like what most mentors do. We meet you where you at. Like you just tell us what's going on for you. And that begins helping us understand your story, where you're struggling, where you long for, what you're evading, what's already happening for you. And we're sometimes we're doing assessment, not in a negative sense, like a psychiatrist would be of trying to pigeonhole you in a disorder, but we're listening for strengths and wholeness. We're listening for where there's protector parts. We didn't talk about this too much and probably don't have time, but like where I'm feeling really wounded or very conformist or I have addictions or I escape certain opportunities or I have this self-critical voice. We're listening for those kinds of voices. We're also listening for hints of eco-awakening, like your conversation with natural world. We're listening for, you know, I've had a great career and it's just over. There's something sacred calling me out of my profession as a whatever. We're listening for these edges of kind of like, oh, it's, this person feels like they're ready to go into the cocoon. So we're listening all across and we're guiding them based on what we hear and understand of their wholeness, their stage of development, and their stage on the journey of soul initiation. What would be the next invitation to help them resource themselves, dissolve further, or discover who they are? That's a nutshell of what we do. Yeah, because what you're supporting is self-healing. Yeah, we're supporting cultivating of wholeness, yeah. self-healing, we support eco-awakening, and we support the journey of soul initiation. Those are like would be on our calling card. You don't find that for most psychiatrists or psychologists or psychotherapists. Yeah, We're not really interested in symptoms or disorders or things like that. It's, oh, let's cultivate some innate wholeness here, assess what's there, do some self-healing, 
rewild your connection with nature and then see what happens next and when you're ready for this descent to soul. Yeah, it's like you're you're interested in the antithesis of let's get you functioning back in the culture again. Yeah. Yeah. We call it preparation for the journey. Yeah. Yeah, it's not meant to help you fix your life at all. In some ways it's meant to prepare you for the the dissolution of your life and the discovery of the deeper life. Okay. Yeah. I would love for you to close by reading a poem for us. And I think you may have brought a poem that you've written. Before we go there, just let the listeners know how they can reach you specifically. Do you have a website or what should they Google? And I'll put it in in the show notes too, but just if people want to write it down now. Yeah. Yeah. A good place is to read more about the Animus Valley Institute. And then I'll give you my email here if I can remember it. It's uh, Stafford, S-T-A-F-F-O-R-D, dot Brian, B-R-I-A-N, dot Animus Guide, which is A-N-I-M-A-S-G-U-I-D-E, at gmail.com. Okay. And do you have a personal website as well? I do, but I don't usually use it that much. I'd encourage people to look at the Animus website. Okay. That's our programs are all listed, and I'm mostly guiding with them right now, although I do a lot of one-on-one work here in Ojai, California. Okay. So if they want to work with you one-on-one, they can just reach out to you via email and get more information about that. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me here. It's been a delight to share the work that I've been called to and have given my life toward, along with all the other guides and the trainings at Animus. Let me see if I can find this poem. I had it pulled up this morning. Okay. Here it is. And this poem is really about the shadow. Because the other thing I didn't mention about the shadow, the shadow hides parts of us that get wounded, but it also hides our soul until we're mature enough to encounter it. So you might feel that in the poem here. So I call this a salmon's prayer and ceremony. We are finally waking up to the dream that was dreamt for us. We nearly forgot the vision as soon as it came. Perhaps we were not truly seen and held enough to carry it. Perhaps the countless prohibitions constricted the vessel. Perhaps what we were asked to hold is the panacea not sipped for 13 generations. Perhaps it was, simply, too big, too powerful, and too primitive. So the medicine we were to carry slithered into the basement and hides near the crack where water seeps, next to that drain should we ever get flooded. For years it fed on whatever the misdirected but good-intentioned ones were afraid of, that which we all needed but got cast down the steps. The first time it came out of the basement, we did not recognize it as our own, could see only the other's coil, scale, and fang. We broomed it back into the dark. But as we ourselves thickened and shed our own skins, we became aware of a void, of essence, of enchantment, of potency. We noticed the wound at the core. It's still there. Will it ever close or scar? Is this the site where our medicine departed? Do you remember watching its tail rattle away from us? What was it that left our being? Can we invite our wildness back, lie naked in a sandstone wash, revealing gashed to night sky, morning ray, day cloud, green juniper, and golden eagle? Can we place a beetle on our belly? Can we shake our own rattle and bite that which vanished back into our tail, back into thigh, back into liver? Do we dare in ceremony call to serpent? 
Do we share our deepest desire with the dream maker? We nearly forgot the vision as soon as it came. We are finally waking up to the dream that was dreamt for us. Perhaps what we call serpent will return to our holy flesh. Come, serpent, come. Come, medicine, come. Come, power, come. Ooh. Yeah, so you can hear in that story something being cast into shadow down the steps into the basement of the psyche and coming up with this face or this image of a serpent, something that most of us, both biologically and religiously, have been told to be afraid of. And in fact, it's the serpent that holds the medicine, holds the power, holds the enchantment, holds the panacea for ourselves and for our people. Yeah, we have to encounter it. We have to charm it back into our lives in a certain way. There's so much mystery in that poem. It's very compelling. It really speaks to this journey of reclaiming. Resistance comes up and we are afraid and we push Absolutely. it back. And Yeah, we misunderstand it the first time it shows up. We're terrified of it. And we notice something's missing. It's like, oh, maybe that thing that I'm afraid of is the thing that needs to come back. And it's not often what we think it is. It's dangerous to our egos, but it's essential for who we are. Yeah. There's a mystery behind the serpent, too. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that poem. Beautiful. No, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. And thanks for coming onto the podcast and for the whole conversation. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me and thanks for asking some great questions and sharing personally yourself as well and giving me this opportunity. You bet. I appreciate it. Okay. Take care, Brian. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. If you like the show, I'd so appreciate it if you could subscribe and share it with people you think would love it. It's an unpaid labor of love, and your support encourages me to keep it coming. You can find show notes, leave comments, and sign up for my newsletter at the podcast website, trackingyes.com. And you can find more of my work in the world at my coaching website, lizwilson.com. Talk to you next time. And in the meantime, have a great week. And keep your compass lined up with yes.